Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm stand-up comedian James Mullinger and the co-founder of Edit Magazine. This is Mullinger Meets Canadians, the podcast where we meet Canadians who are making waves on the world stage. Hello, my friends. Please strap in and gear up for what is probably my favourite episode of this or indeed any podcast ever. Nancy Regan is a bona fide Atlantic Canadian icon and a legend. A journalist, news anchor and television personality, best known for her 15-year tenure as host of CTV's Live at Five, which at its peak was bringing in a quarter of a million viewers every single night. She also served as the national host of CTV's Good Morning Canada and That News Show and has interviewed some of the most famous people on the planet including Oprah Winfrey, Madonna, Russell Crowe, Mel Gibson and Harrison Ford. Nancy is also an actor, having appeared on stage at Halifax's gorgeous Neptune Theatre and in TV and film productions such as Haven, Trailer Park Boys and Reversible Errors. Let's face it, we all feel like we know Nancy, and I pride myself on making a close connection with everyone I interview for this podcast. But I can safely say, over the hour you are about to hear, Nancy and I forged a bond that I know we will share forever. As she described it to me afterwards, we are kindred spirits. Two people who love what we do, but are riddled with insecurities. I learned about hers from her new book, From Showing Off to Showing Up an imposter's journey from perfect to present, which I found utterly beautiful and truly eye-opening and inspiring. In this intimate memoir, she gives us a behind-the-scenes account of her experience hosting a TV show with seemingly all of the Maritimes watching, while studiously concealing fear, insecurity and self-doubt. With remarkable candour, Nancy describes how she created the illusion of having it all together because she didn't want anyone to know how close she was to falling apart. Are you ready for this? Here's Nancy. Nancy, it is such an honour to be in a room with you. It's, it's, I don't know about the honour. You see my imposter immediately jumps out. As soon as you say that, I think, oh, it's not an honour, it's, but it's going to be fun. It is going to be fun, but it's genuinely an honour. As you know, I finished your book earlier today, having been devouring it for the past week and finding it incredibly moving, emotional, inspiring, And I emphasize the fact that we're in a room together because, I mean, this is quite a rare thing to be doing a podcast with someone in the very same room. We are here at the Podstarter Studios together. That's an honor. That's an honor. That's the real honor. That I can can own. That is an honor. And it's also an honor for me that you read the book. And that, I don't mean that uh, in a pat way. I mean, it, it really, I'm at a stage with this where it's still kind of breathtaking to me that someone takes that much time out of their life to read what I've written. Well, reading it literally 
is an honor, but I understand that feeling right now where this is the week and the time that it's coming out, months of work, a lifetime of living this. It's not a traditional memoir in the respects that it is part self-help, part uh, advice, part memoir. Um, It's so many different things. Did you know when you started writing it what journey you were going to take and what the book was going to focus on? (laughs) You just made me realize that my book has ADHD, just like me. It does, it does, which is highly (laughs) fitting. It's, uh, and by that I don't mean it, I don't mean it's, it's I, that's not what I meant it was all over the place I, I guess what I mean is is the fact that it is incredibly uh, there's so much more to it like everyone learns about Nancy Reagan's life what you went through what you've been through how you kind of rose to the top but unlike I think most memoirs there's definitely a guide to life in there but crucially it's about how we as people put on a false front and indeed the terrifying thing that is public speaking which even for people like us that do it for a living it is still terrifying And that's what we need to talk about, I think. I started writing the book, James, about confidence. Mm. And it became, I I guess it morphed into a book about connection. Mm. I was thinking about that this morning. And I pitched a book about the fear of public speaking to Nimbus Publishing. And they very kindly believed in me and said yes. They really took a chance because I've never written a book before. And I guess everyone has to start somewhere. But... It meant a lot to me that they took that chance on me. And as I was giving them pieces of my writing, my uh, managing editor was getting the idea that, hmm, this is not the book we want to write. And she came back and she sat me down one day and said, we want you to take the fear of public speaking out of the title. And I said, say what? (laughs) (laughs) Because for me, all of a sudden, that was that was going to change the title so it was the just about fear right. instead the title has morphed since then but because it was called practicing presence is yes. that right originally yes and and see that's how far back i've been looking forward to this book because <laughs> I, I've received an early Nimbus uh, press release about the wonderful news that Nancy Wiggins was writing a book and practicing presence again it sounds so intriguing but it wasn't the path you ended up taking no and she I coach people in public speaking and I am, what I say is subversively soulful. Mm. And so she was reading my writing and said, there's a lot more here Mm. than a book of public speaking. And what she pointed out was basically that I was hiding behind the podium. (laughs) So I was saying, yeah, I can put out a book about this. And I was offering stories from my own experience, but I wasn't allowing that full focus and I wasn't thinking I was going to go as deep as I did. And in the end, I structured the book very much like I do with clients, because I say, if you have a fear of public speaking, I can give you tips and tricks for presentation, for delivery, how to stand, to make you feel better. But I believe that beneath the fear of public speaking is really the fear of public being. And beneath that is the fear of being seen, And if you dig beneath that, it's the fear of being seen as inadequate. Mm. And of course, beneath that is the fear that we actually are inadequate. And for me, that was absolutely the case. I had spent a lifetime standing in a spotlight, but not feeling my own light, Mm -hmm. because I really felt that I was fooling everybody. That is so intriguing and indeed will be surprising to so many people, because I think what's so brave about you taking this particular angle with the book is that I think it's fair to say that 80% of people wanting to read Nancy Reagan's memoir 
will be coming into it wanting to learn how you became one of the most recognizable faces in Atlantic Canada, someone who people saw on, on television every single night, being amazing, and there's no two ways about it, regardless of how you might have felt inside, you were up there being amazing. And you were everyone was, was loving watching you, admiring you, also seeing you do other things. It wasn't just that. You were also very, very public in other ways, being seen at events and, and fundraisers and, and all of these exposing moments. Mm-hmm. And... So all these people coming into the book wanting to learn about that journey, and that journey is, of course, covered. But to have that journey covered, but also underneath it, the tremendous fear that was going through and and the insecurity, it's so brave. You are tapping into something I'm experiencing in a huge way this week. Mm. In fact, I posted last night on social media because I had shared a picture of me signing my books. They'd just come in and saying that, you know, they were available in a store. And I got a, a flood of beautiful messages, tons of comments, and all enthusiastic and supportive. And I just had to write a post to say, that was so meaningful to me. And I was so grateful for the enthusiasm and the support. But I also had a less predictable reaction as well, which was kind of a visceral reminder that on TV, I always, when I was younger on television, I really wanted everyone to like me. And you learn when you're in the public eye that you're never going to achieve that. And and in the public eye or out of it, you're never going to have everyone. You're not for everyone. And you shouldn't be. (laughs) And so if I had set out to write a book that would appeal to everyone, it wouldn't be meaningful to anyone. Yes. And what I did instead was I wrote the book that was waiting to be written in my heart and soul. And so there is that old fear factor going, oh, a lot of people are going to, exactly what you're saying, buy the book because they used to watch you on TV and they're going to want to know the stories, but they're not necessarily meaning to get into a book that is psychologically this deep or or spiritually even. So I really open up completely and I feel like, it had to be this or nothing. Which is amazing. And I mean, there's no doubt that anyone reading it is going to be inspired by all of those things and embrace it. But it doesn't change the fact that I imagine right now is a very nerve-wracking time. It's a very nerve-wracking time when you have opened yourself up and essentially when you are writing something solitary, you essentially write, you kind of forget that you're writing it for some other people to read. And then suddenly, uh, and I know, for instance, that you didn't show it to family before publishing it. So a lot of them are reading it for the first time now. Um, So what are you going through this week? And really, what's the desired outcome? What what would be the thing that, and I know you're someone that is I was going to say not hard to please, but but as in, but you um you have you been talking to my husband? <laughs> she, she sent me a text earlier. He said it's a good luck with this. Uh, she, she 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 she's not going to enjoy it because she's very hard to please. Um, um, but I guess what I mean is that you um you don't settle for things easily. So therefore, what would be the outcome of the book that would be something that you would give yourself a pat on the back and go that was the desired outcome? Well, you. You started my day. You're going to make me emotional already. You started my day with the answer to that question because uh, we have not met before. Mm -hmm. And when I got up this morning, I try not to check email right away, but I I was up for a little bit and then I went to my email and found your note. Mm -hmm. And it was just a, a very open hearted message to say, 
I really resonate with this and here's why. And that kind of message just grounds me. It's like I'm, I'm, you know, swirling up in the air and it just takes me by the feet and grounds me back down to say, this is why. This is why I'm sharing this much information about myself mm-hmm. because, you know, I was even taught as a kid, you don't talk about yourself. Right. You don't, and, and a memoir is very self-focused by definition. It's a me-moir. Yes, yes. <laughs> so it's about me. And that feels counterintuitive in a way. But I hope that readers will really get the sense that I'm not, I'm not preaching. I'm, I'm, Seeking. So I'm a seeker, not a teacher in this book. Right. Does that resonate with you? Totally. And again, I mean, I thank you for writing it. That was the feeling that I felt when I read it, because it, for me, as someone who does public speak on a regular basis, it resonated with me. But I also felt like it would not only resonate with other people in this industry, but also people who perhaps feel too shy to speak to their work colleagues in the, mm-hmm. the lunchroom, because I was that person 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and so I th- that's the thing that's so wonderful about it is that anyone who is experiencing any kind of fear or anxiety in their day-to-day life or shyness, even if they just feel a little bit shy in Mm -hmm. certain social situations, is going to resonate deeply with them. And I think that's why why I I felt so touched by it. That's why it brought me to tears in numerous occasions. And I just felt relieved that someone had really tapped into what we go through, regardless of whether... um, And I feel like everyone in many ways has to do it. I mean, I remember when I worked in retail and I was told that I had to go up to people in the book. I worked in an equivalent of uh, of Chapters Indigo in in the UK and it was my dream job because I love books and being surrounded with... It's called WH Smiths. But I was told I needed to not stand behind the counter. I need to go and ask people... Uh, you know, if I could help them. And that was the most terrifying thing. Um, and, and to this day, I felt like that, when I would stand behind the counter and see someone come in, and I would think, right, I've got to walk over and say, how can I help you? That is the same feeling I get when I'm standing behind the curtain about to walk out on stage. And I feel like that's what is so beautiful about from showing off to showing up is that everyone, everyone is experiencing that same feeling in some form in their day-to-day life. But we experience it wearing a mask. Mm. And you and I are great examples of people who have the ability to fool anyone. No one would look at you and say, oh, he's nervous before his show. In fact, many people have said to me, if I'm preparing to do an MC job or a keynote or something, and I mention anything about being nervous, they say, oh, you come on, you never get nervous. You're the most comfortable person on stage. And I always always take the air out of that balloon and say, no, I absolutely get nervous. And really the self-help part of this book is my toolbox for keeping myself out of anxiety mm. and catching myself and taking myself out. So you arrived a few minutes ago and I had beaten you here. Yes. And we were both like 45 minutes early, like, like who does that? <laughs> who does that? Us. We were excited, what can we say? But I was standing, um, uh, my dorky self was out standing in bare feet on the pavement in the parking lot because I knew when I arrived, I was feeling flighty. I was feeling a little nervous about being on this side of the table. Mm. I'm I'm used to asking the questions and having the attention focused on me. And you have a great profile. You Mm. have done so many things. You have interviewed so many interesting people. But I mean, Oprah, Madonna, I haven't interviewed Oprah or Madonna. So I mean, it's surely. <laughs> you haven't. Oh my God. Well, in that case. Oprah, Madonna, no. Russell, Meg Ryan, Mel Gibson. I mean, I mean, all of them. 
um, anyway, we'll, we'll get to them later. But but sorry, yeah. Karen, so I, I was standing. Uh, yeah, that's a good tease. Um, uh, a little promo. Yeah, keep listening. <laughs> <laughs> da -da -da. Um, I was standing in bare feet because, for me, that's one of my doorways to presence is to stand on the ground in my bare feet and uh, do earthing, what is what they call it, or yes. just ground myself. Right. And I take myself out of my swirling head. I, I really have a, a mind that is like a rabid monkey <laughs> and bring myself back down into my body and into my heart out of my intellect. Interesting. I mean, it's fascinating to me. And again, nothing about that sounds strange to me because everyone has their process. And, mm -hmm. and it's interesting when you describe... For example, I think I do look nervous before a show, but possibly in a hidden, like part of why I can't, for example, be, you know, when people say, oh, will you do the photo op before the show? Will you do this? Yes. Like basically, I mean, I have, I still have like facial tics from when I'm a kid. So what, before I go on stage, I'm I'm like, I basically need to be in a dressing room and I'm a twitching mess. I mean, for the for the listener, I'm twitching right now. Yeah. If you're watching the video, you can see that. But So I have to get all my facial tics out of the way because I've now got 90 minutes where I can't do them and then I'm fiddling with the top of the water and, and then pacing and then of course suddenly as soon as it's like okay door opens you're then around other people and then it's like yeah then you look steely and calm you're not feeling it but you can put on the as you describe but you could the false front the false face the mask and then go through with it but um I it's why we when we are emceeing yeah. we were just talking about this beforehand but I, I really want to share it with people because yeah. I think it's helpful to understand it's why if we're asked, oh, will you sit at the head table? Yes. What do we say, James? We say, uh, no, thank you, because I don't want you to see how boring I am. <laughs> but, but, but it's also, as you say, we, we need that time to focus. Yeah. And it is kind of like that thing of, I guess, you know, do, and you, you don't want to sound like a, a you, we're always very aware when you're in, in any type of business of show of not wanting to appear, you know, lovey or pretentious. Prima donna. Prima donna. But, yeah. but you are trying to say, look, I will do the best job if I have some time alone. And again, not comparing what we do to an heart, heart surgeon. Surgeons. Yes, <laughs> that's always what I think of. And I say this because, I mean, a, a heart surgeon a friend of mine said he wanted to try stand-up and was ridiculously good at it very annoyingly quickly and I put it down to possibly because he is used to feeling anxious but having to act calm so maybe ah. the two skills are very similar you know obviously comedians are far more important to the world than heart surgeons obviously but but it's very I'm joking if you don't write in letters um, but um <laughs> but it's that thing of having a kind of a steely resolve in a stressful situation and I wonder if that's the thing that kind of that, that unites us is being able to kind of ultimately, even no matter how we're feeling, to be able to kind of bring it back to a place of, I can do this. Yeah, I think about my young self now, and sometimes I watch clips. And I, especially this one show I write about in the book, um, this series of shows that we did from Florida, it was called Spring Fling 94 or 96, something like that. And I was going through a spiral of, of a crisis of confidence. And I just remember my inner critic was nattering away that whole week. And yet I can look at the tape and although I didn't feel my light, I can see the light that other people were seeing and talking to me about all the time. And that's, that's the funny thing. I was on a show that had a 50 share in the Maritimes. And when I would go to New York or LA to do a movie junket, mm. other broadcasters, journalists would say, you know, from New York or wherever, would say, oh, what, what kind of share do you have? And I'd say, oh, we have a 50. And they'd say, oh, you mean 15? Like, duh. 
And I'd say, no, 50, because 50 meant that at 5 o'clock, 50% of the televisions that were turned on in the Maritimes were watching our show. Right, which is so <laughs> colossal. And to give to give people an example, a listing of how huge 50%, like I would say 10% of people in the Maritimes have seen Squid Game. 15% might have seen Tiger King, right? <laughs> right. So, and, and, right, so these, like, so when you look funny. at the cultural lexicon, like, yeah. like to be to have half. So, I mean, I mean, th- this is one of the things that I was so, so desperate to ask, like during this period, and I'm sure that it still happens now as well. But during that period, when you were going through this crisis of confidence, but yet not only delivering it every night, but nailing it. And again, and by your own acknowledgement, you can see what other people could see. How did you cope with the fact with essentially being that famous in the Maritimes world? But I'm sure you couldn't go anywhere without. And of course, people are incredibly friendly here. So <laughs> no one is shy about coming up and saying, great job last night. Oh, I love what you do <laughs> and, and, and wanting a chat. How did you cope with that on a day to day basis? Well, the nature of the show as well is very familiar and friendly. Right. And so... It's like an open door policy for people to Really. So everywhere we went as the hosts, people would approach us and say, oh, we feel like we know you. Uh, You have dinner with us every night. Like, if if I could tell you how many times my co-host and I would hear that, it you know, it's unbelievable. I was literally about to say that, and I saw I I bit my tongue. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But... They felt like they knew me, but I was, that was acting a lot, you know, and yet part of me was there. I was, I was partly myself for sure. And yet there was a lot concealed and I was doing what I talked about. I wanted people to like me. I was the, you know, I was a poster girl for people pleasing and in television, it matters if people like you. In fact, your ratings there, we just talked about the share, for instance, when they rate and, and see in their spring ratings and fall ratings, how's the show doing? How are the individuals who are on the show performing? They do all these surveys. That's, you know, that's a representation in a real way right. of how popular you are. Yes. Can you, yes, yeah. how popular you are, it depends on, can you pay the bills? They right. are they are directly linked. So it's not all ego. Like sometimes people mistake in this business when we are pushing mm-hmm. ourselves. They mistake it for ego. A lot of time it is simply, it's the business of show for a reason. But so when people were coming up to you and saying how much they, that must have felt good. No, it actually, well, it, it, it did and it didn't. Mm. There's paradox in every part of my life. Uh, it felt very good in that for someone who doesn't feel their own light, if I can go back to that metaphor, yeah. someone shining a light on them feels good in the moment, but it's not enduring. It's not sustainable. Right. It's like not sustainable energy. Yeah. So as soon as that attention is gone, you go back to that kind of darkness and also, I think that when people are making a big deal about you, and that happens sometimes because I you know, was seen sitting down with Oprah on her set yeah. and interviewing her. So that kind of celebrity got attached to me in some small way because, it, well, if she knows Oprah, she must be a big deal. Right. And I think that enhanced my imposter syndrome right. because... 
I knew I wasn't a big deal. I knew that internally I was really still this dorky kid who was afraid for people to know, <laughs> you know, how nervous I was and how much anxiety I had. Like that was my greatest fear of, and I had a lot of fears. I was a, very afraid of making mistakes, but all because I didn't want people to know that I wasn't really enough. And I think the more they told me how fabulous I was, the more I felt that sense of being an imposter. Interesting. Did you ever get a sense when you were talking to, for example, because of course you talk about uh, Oprah's level of, of fame, but then she is, she also has, of course, as everyone does, insecurities. Madonna has insecurities. Russell yeah. Crowe definitely has lots of things going on. Mel Gibson. Uh, yeah, yeah, well, Mel Gibson, perfect. Yeah, mm. I mean, they, they all have, I mean, a friend of mine, uh, went to Russell Crowe's house to do a shoot once and essentially got kidnapped by him for a week and was forced to sit in his studio <laughs> in his little cinema watching videos of his band for a week. What? Like someone, yes, yeah, and, and, and little little home movies of his band playing. Now, now, <laughs> a, a, as amazing a story that is, that's not the actions of someone that is entirely comfortable with themselves, right? right? right. Watch um, me, watch me, watch me. Watch me, watch me, exactly. Mm. And, um, and so I guess when you were with these people, did you ever feel that they too had this in a discomfort with themselves and was it ever something that you ever thought that you could bring up because it's interesting that we all feel that like we sit with someone that has that level of whether it's celebrity or, or success or fame but really I mean everyone's struggling with these things to an extent yes and for me that's what the book is about is mm. taking down the curtain if I'm the Wizard of Oz I want to take down that curtain yes and um Last week I did a keynote in a little town in Nova Scotia called Kentville. Oh, nice. I love Kentville. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. And in this beautiful old building, the Cornwallis Inn. Oh, beautiful. And it was built in the 1930s. And anyway, it was a group of women who were there for a networking event. And it was one of the first in-person events mm. since uh, the pandemic started. So that felt great. But I did a presentation called Showing Up the transformative power of authenticity. And my second slide was, or as I like to call it, how Mel Gibson helped me show up for Oprah. Nice. Okay. Yeah, that's a way to get people's attention. <laughs> right. I thought, I thought that's a kitschy little way to yes, get people's nice. attention. Um, but really, it was about the fact that when I sat down to interview Mel Gibson for the Braveheart junket, mm. And the junket, of course, is where there are 50 interviewers lined up through the day. <laughs> the star is sitting in the one hotel suite, and there's a there's a, basically a revolving door around the other chair. So it's just a constant stream. And they sat stream. there for 10 hours, <gasps> uh, in some cases, being asked the same questions. The same over. questions. Yeah. And you have to get some of those same questions. And, mm. and you usually just have four or five minutes with the star. So you walk in. Someone's just leaving. And I had been outside in the hallway, literally pacing like a like an expectant father outside the, you know, in the old days outside the <laughs> yeah. delivery room. And someone uh, who was a good friend of mine from Paramount was laughing at me like, what is going on with you? You, you do this all the time. Okay. And and she thought, you know, she would normally see me being very confident. And I said, it's Mel Gibson. <laughs> it was He was at the top of his game then. Yeah. And he was the director, producer, and, and star of the yeah. film. And I was kind of 
in love with him right. from Lethal Weapon. Yeah. And so I just rewatched that last week. That's oh so funny. My oh my god. god. Mel's so in that movie. <gasps> best best butt shot ever in a movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> but he was also just so charismatic yeah. and yeah. and wonderful in that movie, I yeah. thought. So when he he was sitting in a big period chair from picture of the Braveheart set. Oh. <laughs> and uh it was covered in velvet, and and I was sitting down in one across from him as they were just pinning my microphone on, and he said, "Hey, how are you doing?" And you really just have maybe thirty seconds to create any kind of rapport, and you know, as an interviewer, you need to have some kind of rapport before you enter into the conversation. You need a connection, yeah, before you you really talk to someone. And he said, "How are you doing?" And for some reason, I was so nervous, I guess, that I somehow decided I'm going to tell the truth. And I looked at him and I said, I'm I'm actually really nervous. <laughs> and that is unlike me because I would usually have the mask on, like glued on right. and really want to show that I was, oh, good. Everything was perfect. And he looked at me and crooked his head and he said, oh, you're nervous of talking to me? And he started, he said, watch, watch me, look at my eyes. He started slapping his face and putting his hands in his mouth and making the most ridiculous faces. And then he stopped and he said, there, do you feel better? <laughs> and I was like, it was like, oh. it, all of that nervousness left because he brought me into the present moment and he reminded me, oh, we're just two human beings sitting there right. talking to each other. And of course, in the years since, uh, we've learned that he is riddled with, you know, or mm. reputedly riddled mm. with insecurity and has his issues. Yeah. And I would say, James, that interviewing the biggest celebrities in the world taught me that. Mm. Like, we're all the same. Yeah. And we're all putting that mask on to say, yeah. I'm good. Everything's great. And yet we compare our inner life with everyone else's outer life. So, so that lesson was about six months before I went to Chicago and interviewed Oprah. And I was really much more ready yes, for Oprah <laughs> because of that experience with Mel Gibson. Interesting. And I revered Oprah. Like I basically was <laughs> I was pretending to be Oprah in my fake it, make it kind of, you know, right. style. Yeah. But then a thing like that is it's so true that everyone has uh, self-doubt. Mm. And I hear so many stories about like the, you know, you hear about the biggest stars in the world sitting around a, a table together. I'm thinking here about two particular, two of the biggest American comedy TV movie stars of all time sitting around a table basically arguing about how hard they've got it because they'll never be taken seriously and they'll never win an Oscar. And yet, meanwhile, they've got the biggest box office haul of any. Yeah. And they're so unhappy because they'll never be taken seriously even though they've got 100 box office hits to their name. And I guess I know this is slightly kind of different because it's different to insecurity, but when you are looking at people and saying, what is it that they want out of life? And you look at someone like that, you look at the most successful, famous people in the world, and if they're not happy, they've achieved everything. What can we all do to achieve that happiness where we are actually content with the things that we've achieved? I've got an answer. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> I've got my hand Wonderful. up in the air. Perfect. Pick me. Pick yeah. me. <laughs> good, good. There's no one else here. So <laughs> it's all, the floor is oh yours, Oh, my gosh. Nancy. Oh, my gosh. How humbling. Um, <laughs> uh, Unless there's anyone else outside that can hear that wants to come and have a, have a go first. <laughs> so I really think it comes back to feeling their own light or not. And I think that 
the answer for someone in that situation is that they have to at some point figure out that nothing in the external world is going to make them happy. Mm. No level of fame, no level of success. And they have to do what I did. Not that everyone has to do this, but I recommend it because I'll tell you, writing this book was the best therapy I could ever imagine. I've had some limited experience with therapy in my life, but this was like mind-blowing in terms of helping me understand myself. And when I look at my experience now, I realize that I couldn't really be comfortable in a spotlight or on a stage in a true way because I didn't like myself. And in order to get to a place where I like myself, I had to, A, figure out what it was I didn't like about myself. And that means an internal focus. Like, you've really got to do some work to take down the barriers that you've built yourself to say, no, no, I'm good, I'm good. And I had to figure out what I didn't like about myself. And then I had to figure out a way to accept those broken parts of myself. And that's a quote from Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love Mm -hmm. and and Big Magic, which is a book that I just, I'll tell you, it's definitely one of my favorite books of all time. It's a nonfiction book about creativity and inspiration and the way fear gets in the way of our creativity. So she, in our conversation for my podcast, said she referred to those broken parts of herself. And that was a conversation that really helped me come to that place of greater self-acceptance because we talked about paradox. And she she said, James, you know, she was talking about the death of her partner, Rhea Elias, who had been a real force of nature. And she said, you know, was I a compassionate, caring, amazing caregiver while Rhea was dying? Or was I a total fucking narcissist mm. caught in my own shit? Right. And she said, yes. Wow. The answer is yes. To I was both those uh. things. And for some reason, sometimes someone just says something in a certain way. And I've certainly had this experience reading other people's books Mm. that are open and authentic. Someone can just say something and it flips a switch for you where you go, oh, it's like my cells rearranged. And I went, oh, yeah. So I am, I am nervous and anxious but I am also good at performing. I am you know, good at interviewing, but I also get very worried about people liking me. So all those things can live in one space. And I have to say that um, after that podcast interview was posted and it was for my podcast called The Soul Booth, yeah. which is just something I started when Donald Trump <laughs> became president in the U.S., it felt like there was a lot of darkness in the world. And yeah. I thought, okay, Nancy, it's time to get off your ass and use your voice and try to amplify the light of other people Amazing. to really overuse my metaphor. No, that's beautiful. But really, yeah. it was about, it was about this world needs more light. And I'm having all these beautiful conversations with people who are doing meaningful things in the world. I need to amplify those voices in some way. I have the television as a background and so on. Anyway, so. Amazing. After that conversation, 
there's an artist, a, a musician in Canada whose name is Paul Luftenegger, and he is from Ontario, and he had a beautiful song that uh, has made its way into hearts around the world called My Heart. And it's very much, it says, put your hand on your heart and mm. say, I love you. And it, it's more, he calls it conscious music. So it's more about hearing it at a heart level rather than a mind level. But he... I have a point. Yeah, <laughs> I'm getting yeah. there. <laughs> My monkey mind is working. Um, he heard that podcast episode, and it sparked something for him, the way we talked about paradox. And he wrote a song called Broken and Whole. And I listen to that song, and it just takes my breath away. And I encourage people to look that up because it's a message. And, and don't listen to it from an intellect level. Listen to it with your eyes closed, with your heart. And I think that it will have the same kind of impact. You know, my heart caused him such celebration and, and uh, celebrity, as Lord I'm looking for, that he has performed at the UN in New York three times. Wow. Uh, and anyway, but he's just, you know, he's someone who's very love-based, and that song is really inspiring. So we can be kind of broken and whole at the same time. And I mean, so f for you, what were the things that you didn't like about yourself? Was it the insecurities th themselves that you didn't like, or was there something else deeper rooted that made those uh, insecurities feel so pertinent? And that's where I say you have to read the book. Right. <laughs> no, yes, I yes, know, yes, but you point. have read but, the yeah, book. Yeah, but, but I'll give yeah. you an example Perfect. from the book. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is, it's structured like an archaeological dig, yeah. which is what it was for me personally. Mm -hmm. So that's intentional. And one of the things, so when I was digging in the dark hole, mm -hmm. as I call it, yeah. uh, getting down into the shadows, which uh, is is reminiscent of Carl Jung's The Shadow, yeah. you know, that we all have those parts of ourselves that we don't want to own. Yeah. And when I was doing that, one of the things I hit on was how much my ADHD, which had never been diagnosed when I was a child, but how much as an adult, it made me feel less than. Right. And how much I had ingrained through the years that I was not smart in some way because I couldn't focus on a whole speech. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, as soon as someone asked me to focus on anything for a period of time, I really mean to. I really want to. I'm a perfectionist. I, and I hold my feet to the fire like, do it, do it, do it. And yeah. the next thing you know, I'm thinking about... Oh, I wonder what James is doing later today. <laughs> <laughs> and then that would make you angry with yourself. Right. Or, yeah. 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 And making mistakes. Right. You know, I, I really had a terrible fear of failure. And that showed up in beating myself up when I'd make a mistake. So when you're on live TV, you have a little earpiece in your ear. And mine was molded because I was a, a host of a show. Yeah. So it would never pop out or anything. And there were a lot of voices in that. And you've probably had this experience where the director can speak to you, the producer can speak to you while you're talking to your audience. Right. And you have to be able to handle that yeah yeah without your eyes kind of doing that thing that, that with the telltale sign when someone's yeah and we've all seen like news broadcasters do that in a pinch when they're just listening to the it's producer. true yeah yeah exactly yeah there's there's, there's there's stages of like 
that you can tell how long someone's been in the business. If they've only been in the business a couple of years, their finger goes to their ear. That that's amateur <laughs> hour. Uh, and then and then there's the eye to the to the back corner of the head when they're, t- they're, they're kind of the, the half grin and the nodding, pretending they're listening. Really, yeah, they're listening to someone in the ear going, "Get them to wrap it up." <laughs> yeah. You've watched this studiously, I can tell. Yeah. So I also had this voice that was incessant in my ear saying, "Oh, that was a stupid thing to say." Oh, I can't believe you did that. I and and on a larger platform, you don't deserve this job. What are you doing here? And that of course was my own voice, my inner critic. And my whole aim for this book is to have anyone who looked at me who said, "Oh, she's got it all together." And right. she, you know, why couldn't I be more like her? She's so confident. Right. I want to have them go, "Oh. Oh." She feels just like I do. Right. And it gives people permission to try and fail. And yes. that was one of the things that I, like when I when I first found the confidence to, after years of being scared to speak to people, but being obsessed with stand-up comedy and wanting to try it, the thing that finally gave me the push to do it was seeing the documentary comedian about Seinfeld burning his material and coming back to stand up and there's a scene where he goes on stage with notes and new material and forgets where he's at and starts bombing and is confused and drops his notes and picks them up and then someone in the audience and of course it's in a New York club but it's a brick because Brits are rude like this uh, <laughs> shouted out is this your first gig oh. and, uh, and everyone laughs and of course and it was almost like seeing the greatest of all time fail almost I felt like it gave me permission to do the same and that is the wonderful thing about your book and you've just summed it up perfectly I feel like anyone reading this thinking yeah they've seen you on TV you know hundreds of times or thousands of times throughout their life it makes them think well well if she feels like that then I don't need to feel bad about feeling like this for my presentation at work tomorrow or to deliver my talk in the classroom tomorrow or my pitch or my my winning speech job interview job interview all those things yeah they all it all comes back to the same Thing. I mean, I, an example that I often think of is on my wedding day, my father-in-law has never public spoken, never lives on the Kingston Peninsula in New Brunswick. Mm. If his daughter hadn't moved to England, would probably have never left the area. Proper kind of, you know, old school, maritimer, wonderful, wonderful man, but would never speak up in a group, Might maybe at the, at the camp with five people, but right. other than that. And then I was a professional comedian. And on the wedding day, my speech essentially completely bombed because I tried to <laughs> bring a stand-up approach to it. <laughs> oh, no. And he came with, and, it, and it was very nervous, but came with an incredibly heartfelt, honest, and absolutely to the road. To this day, this is eight, 16 years ago, people still come up to us, well, people we haven't seen in years that we bump into that were at the wedding say, best wedding speech I've ever seen because it was from the heart, which meant that there were huge laughs because of course, in between the tears, mm-hmm. little throwaway comments, but whereas I came, and it was, to me, it's fascinating that 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 art form of he did the thing, and I always say this to people whenever people try and book me for wedding gigs. I'm always say, but the audience want they're there to hear from the family that they haven't seen in. They don't want a comedian coming in and trying yeah. to be. Fu- if they want to see a com- comedy yeah. show, they'll buy tickets. <laughs> and and I mean that's it. I do occasionally do those gigs, but it's always on the basis that okay, I want to know everything about you all to make it personal. Um, oh my gosh, that's cool. Do you wish you could go back and do your wedding again? It's a good question. I guess 
to, to, to be philosophical, which is how I feel after reading your book, I guess not because I learned so much from mm-hmm. it. Like it was, you know, they always say you learn more from a bad gig. Not that my wedding is a gig, but, <laughs> but terrible things. But um, but you learn more from a bad. Is your wife listening? Yeah, I know exactly. Right. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I know, uh, I get it. And and I think I mean, I learned so much from it to the extent that it that one experience probably forms whenever people ask for advice about public speaking. That one thing is the thing I think of the most. That. You know, Barry, my father-in-law, has probably not public spoken since, but just that the, seeing someone find the, the kind of steely resolve to actually just speak utterly from the heart mm-hmm. um, is what tore the roof off that, that moment and brought everyone to tears and laughter and everything else. And he was totally present. Yeah, totally present at the moment. Like, he was just literally completely open. And I was not. I was basically doing the... And it's the, kind of the same with stand up where if you're not in the moment and you're actually just looking like you're doing an impression of a comedian there's a difference between how that gig yeah. goes yeah. but no I, so, so I guess to answer your question I mean in, in, I guess I don't because yeah because I learned from it and and um it worked out she I, stayed with you anyway she, she stayed with you anyway exactly yeah and she's seen me she's seen me bomb a million times which is one of many bombs so I mean for you now like now that you've been and now that you put all this down and it's all out there do you think that that will make it easier for you when you do do a, a keynote speech or, or public speaking or meeting people? Do you feel like there's in some way the cathartic nature of writing the book that some of that has been shared? Uh, in a huge way. Beautiful. In fact, when I, I told you about the keynote last mm-hmm. week, yeah. I put some slides together and I so I knew you know what slides I was going to use. I have different presentations and so I took slides and, and just thought, okay, I'm going to look at this order. And then every time... I thought about preparing, because that's my old paradigm, be prepared, be yeah. prepared. I, I dismissed it and said, nope, I'm not doing that. I'm just showing up. And I was more relaxed on stage than I've probably ever been in my life. Wow. And amazing. the audience, and it's like a first date. I was so present, so I was able to make a really meaningful connection. I watched around the room, and I was like, everyone's leaning in. They're getting it. They're hungry for this information. And I know this is so corny, but I have a thing for words. I have a fetish for words. And I'm wearing Converse on the cover of the book, Mm -hmm. my Converse, partly, well, for two reasons. One, this whole project has been very much about me digging back to who I was before the world told me who to be and how to be. Right. And here's how you have to dress if you're a girl. And, you know, even I was such a tomboy. <laughs> and I went, I, you know, I became a, a beauty pageant contestant. And I say that with <laughs> the loathing that that's attached to it now. But that was all part of my learning. I don't yeah. regret it. Right. And my desire now is to be who I was when I was eight years old, frankly. Mm-hmm. The other reason I'm wearing Converse, and this is the wordplay, is because my book is very much intended to be a conversation starter. I want to converse with my audience. And that's what last Friday felt like. It was like they were leaning in. And afterwards, as soon as I was done, everybody wanted to talk about this. And I got an email from a woman who had been there later in the day that was so impactful. And she said, it, it moved us so much, your material, and we need to we need to talk about these things because we all, all you know, we women, I think most of us feel like this, but we don't want to show it. Right. She said, I drove home with my colleague and we've worked together for a long time. We had a different level of conversation than we've 
ever had. That must be, be amazing to hear. Yeah, that's For me, everything. that's what it's about. And, and so the, do you think the combination of getting everything down like this, seeing it, reading it, but then also do you think that the pandemic has also had an effect on that? And, and also <laughs> not only on the way in which people react to each other in a room and the way that we open up, but also the way that you perform. Like, do you think that all of the, what we've been through the last year, do you think that's changed how hmm. you feel and how you deliver? I think I'm much more grounded in my true self mm -hmm. and much less worried about people not liking me. Right. So that little critter is not nattering in my ear when I'm up there as much. Yeah. And the same is true for this interview. Even though I was a little nervous beforehand, I just had to ground myself, literally, and remind myself that I just needed to show up. Right. And I just wanted to be present and listen to your questions and be grateful. Uh, for you interviewing me and, and giving me part of your platform, sharing your platform, that's, um, it's, it's uh, really heartwarming to me. That sounds corny, well, no, but it is. It really uh, goes directly to my heart. My heart is full. Well, the feeling is, is mutual. And like I said at the beginning, this it is truly an honor. And it would be such an honor to be doing this anyway. But the fact that we are... This is my first kind of in-person, face-to-face, you know, which again, so I was nervous about meeting you. I've known of you, obviously, as, as long as I've kind of been visiting Canada. I've heard of you, known of you, been aware of you. You're a legend. There's you no doubt about it. can't get away from me, James. Yeah, yeah, I know, that's right, yeah. And then suddenly reading the book and seeing that we had so many things in common. And then, you know, it's interesting how it, the pandemic has changed all of our outlook. And one of the things that I love so much about Again, the self-help aspects of the book. And again, this is something which lots of us that, you know, have been through therapy have been told before about kind of you know, enjoying the journey, not banking on the destination. Mm. And I kind of have a theory that a lot of the narrative of the last two years has been highlighted by how hard it's been on the children, how hard it's been on children. This is the, the best time of their life. And instead, they've been locked down. But I have a theory that Generation Alpha, which I believe they're called, like our generations, whether whether we be uh, millennials or, or Gen X or boomers, like mm -hmm. we are, we've always been the most depressed generations in history. We spend more on therapy, more on self-help right. books, and partly because we don't do the number one thing that every self-help book, whether it be Tony Robbins or The Subtle Up, Not Giving a Fuck, it all boils down to I love that book. enjoy that. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, amazing. Oh. And it's it's enjoy the the journey don't bang on the destination be present yeah, yeah be present and and we have what we have always done in our generations is I'll be happy when the weekend comes I'll be happy when I get promotion mm -hmm. and yet my 7 year old and 11 year old have been taught in the last two years to not look forward to anything because oh. if they do it will just be cancelled so at no point do they ever say what are we doing this weekend because the premier is going to decide when a lockdown so as a result they their outlook is what is in front of me right now that's beautiful and fun and joyful and what can I do? And I think that they are going to be the ones, the first generation in history, because they've been through this, because they've been through a collective trauma. And they say if you grow up with adversity, you grow up with a shield. I mean, it's a fact that mm -hmm. people that grow up without adversity, the Elon Musk's son, child will be a piece of shit. I mean, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. There's no, that, that child is not doing anything good in the world. Um, and, and so uh, really this Generation Alpha, I feel like could in theory be the happiest generation Ever. And that, that was something that just came to me while I was reading your book, when I was thinking about all of our journeys. I thought, this, is, this could be a beautiful thing. What I love about what you just said is that I think our greatest uh, 
source of unhappiness in some ways as adults is that we want order and we want everything to be in boxes and we want to know what's going on. And that's the perfectionist side, you know, of, of needing to control. And what we've learned in the past few years is like we had no control. Yes, don't plan. Just just work with what you got. Right. But yeah. the same reason that it was so hard for so many adults to sit still and yeah. be with just themselves I think you're right. I think for children to grow up in that, it forces you into the present moment. Totally. And that's everything's okay in the present moment. Yeah. Everything, like if you're enjoying what you're doing right now, whereas we have traditionally never done that, we would be doing something uh, amazing, like Mm -hmm. interviewing Oprah, but thinking about a hundred other things that we're worrying about instead of just going, oh my God, I worked I worked for this. Yeah. I worked really hard for this. And I feel like that generation, they've learned to just embrace what's in front of them. I think also when there's so much struggle in the world, and, you know, right away, as soon as I said the present moment is, is everything's fine. Of course, in the Ukraine, that's not true. A lot of places in the world, that's not true. That's a privileged statement. But I guess what I mean is that when there's so much challenge in the world and we've been through such a difficult time together, it's easier to do what I try to do with clients is change their mindset from performance, which is how they're being seen by others and how they're being judged and getting praise, change that mindset to contribution. And what am I giving? What am I sharing with the audience? I heard someone say one time, I'm not the center of the audience's attention. They're the center of my attention. And if you are in that state of, okay, I want to figure out how I can be love in the world. As Father Richard Rohr would say, love in action. And that's it. You know, it's it's how can we make the world a better place? And everyone can. It sounds like a lofty ideal, but even you, by bringing a smile to someone's face when you're going through the grocery aisle, I'm sure, you know, you change you change the tenor of someone's day. Right. And that changes the world. Right. And those are the things that we should embrace when we go to bed at night and be present about. Yeah. And not, and again, I mean, I've, I could not have felt more present for the last, uh, oh, this has been absolutely glorious, mm. glorious. Mm. I've never felt more present. Oh my gosh. This is beautiful. This is absolutely beautiful. Um, Thank I, you. I, I have to ask though, so, I mean, one of the things that really, really I found surprising was how amazing you are at poetry. You obviously love poetry. I find the poems absolutely stunning. I've only recently become interested in poetry because um, an editor I was working with is also a poet, James Langer, amazing. And, and, and I was absolutely touched by them. I'm knowing you now, Nat, and I feel I do know you, um, that must have been a um, nerve-wracking decision to include your own poetry. <laughs> it was really <laughs> nerve-wracking is a good framing. Um, yes, and my editor was terrific. My editor, Whitney Moran, is the managing editor for Nimbus, and she wrote this book with me, you know. I mean, she helped me. I, I joked yesterday that she was my therapist. She was my writing coach. She was everything. Yeah. And she was the one that said, yeah, I really like using the poems. I write poems that are very simple. Like, they started really, I used to love writing poetry as a child, my eight-year-old self did, Mm -hmm. but I put it away for a lot of years. And when the pandemic hit, I went into a a fear vortex for sure. Even though I was safe, Mm -hmm. locked down at my cottage, Mm -hmm. I was worried about the world. And I was feeling, as an empath, I was feeling the fear and the pain of the world. And poetry started like pouring through me like I was trying to drink from a 
a fire hose and I would feel, oh, here comes a poem. And I'd literally have to go grab a pen and write it down because I was afraid I would lose it or it would it would go away, that inspiration, creativity that Liz Gilbert talks about. Yeah. And I was very humble or not humble, I guess, too, but I was very reticent about sharing it with anyone because they sound like poems that my eight-year-old self could have written. But James? But heartfelt. Yes. And, and, and beautiful and touching. And that's what the book's all about. And I really have come to the conclusion that when you create something from a level of intellect, that's where it lands with other people. Yeah. And if you create from a true level of heart and soul, mm. to people who are receptive and open to that, that is where it lands. And I've, I had uh, a woman reach out the other day to send me a picture of a tattoo that she got of a star because of a poem that I have about gold stars cause scars and forge the need to please. That's the, the line in the middle of the poem that she resonated with so deeply and she tattooed it on her oh arm. Oh my God, that's, that's got to be the greatest. That's a yeah. moment to be present and that's the thing to take to bed at night. Yeah, like and that's, that's what, so that grounds me yeah. as your beautiful note did today and you showing up in presence today. When I coach people in getting on stage, I say, I don't want you to present. I want you to present. Nice. And nice. that's that's it. That's the key. So thank you for presenting with me today. <laughs> no, thank you so much. And, um, and I guess the final thing I'd love to just ask is, how did it feel sharing stories with Canadian Love Map? It's such a beautiful podcast. That must have been a wonderful thing to... So much of what we talked about today is joy and love. And, and again, I mean, a podcast like that that just brings... Not only takes those amazing stories. I mean, it must have been incredibly moving. I love doing it so mm. much I can't tell you and I was asked to host it so letting people in on the connection between us yeah. we both have the same producer yeah. pod starter we are here at the pod starter yes, yes. and John and Reese came and mm. visited me at my cottage to ask to talk about me hosting this yeah. uh, podcast and at first I thought well it might be a little schmaltzy romance stories all the time I'm telling you they convinced me otherwise I uh, they showed up yeah. They were present. Yes. I really liked them both. Yeah, and I thought, yeah, you know what? There's breadcrumb here that there's something beautiful is going to come out of this. And it has been a joy, especially during the pandemic, because we've heard from so many people, the stories are uplifting. And we have told love stories of every kind. Yeah. Absolutely inclusive. One of the most popular has been this uh, young trans man in uh, Sackville, Nova Scotia, who started a uh, shop like a comic shop oh yes i, I know yes I know this. yeah amazing yeah oh. absolutely loved, yeah and it's a it's really about love it's yeah. about bringing youth in the community who are uncertain of their identity or certain and don't want anyone to know yeah. into this safe space right absolutely beautiful yes oh. we've uh so lots of i mean canadians from uh, you know, coast to coast to coast have yeah. shared their personal stories. And that's that is really a gift. Yeah, I have been thinking today, I am absolutely going to have James on the Canadian Love Map podcast as a guest. So I love that. This is, it's, it's like a pod starter mashup uh, crossover. I, I'm, I'm trying to think what the what the rap rap collaborations are called. Overlap, crossover, overlap, uh, mashup. Mash it's a mashup. That's what it is. Yeah. It's a it's a pod starter mashup. Mash well, uh, um, listeners, be present and uh, <laughs> join us on Canadian Love Map uh, very soon. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Um, uh, Nancy, thank you so so much for. 
A, writing this book, B, for your time today, and for everything you do. And uh, I can't wait to be present tonight. It's funny, uh, my yes. day is always going stages. I've had three or four things to be nervous about today. Now this was fun. Now I get to go and panic about tonight's show. And, and we will mm. all just live in the moment and enjoy those things and, and prove that Generation Alpha are going to guide us through the next few decades. And you're going to be so focused on your contribution, filling people with love and laughter tonight that you're not going to worry about being nervous, I think. <laughs> we'll see. Thank, <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. You. And Thank you so much. Uh, uh, this is the, hopefully this will be the start of a beautiful friendship. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Mullinger Meets Canadians. If you like greatness, creativity, being inspired, laughing, or just love Canada as much as I do, then this is the podcast for you. So please do subscribe and review the show now. Check out Nancy's website, nancyregan.ca. Be sure to follow her on Twitter at Nancy Regan and on Facebook at Nancy Regan Author. Check out her podcasts, Canadian Love Map and The Soul Booth. But most importantly, right now order her book, From Showing Off to Showing Up, An Imposter's Journey from Perfect to Present from Nimbus.ca. I found it uplifting, empowering and inspiring. And I can honestly say it's one of the very best books I've read in years. So please trust me on this and order it now, nimbus.ca. Further details can be found on the edit website, maritimeedit.com, and I will see you next time. This has been a Podstarter production. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.